Good morning, everyone. You guys, it's all true. He really is alive. And it's not more true this morning than it's been every other morning, but what a, what a precious time for the church who's been made alive by the living Christ, born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to gather together to worship the living one. I just sent around a text to the guys this morning that Jesus said, fear not, I am the living one. He came out of the grave with the keys and he says to all who come to him, he gives life everlasting. So not to preach before with a sermon, but here we go. I mean, if you guys aren't excited, we need to like feel the breath of his life in your lungs this morning. We get to come to his word and the living God is going to be speaking through his living word to a leap people that he's made alive by his spirit. This is all really, really, really good news. And it's our great privilege to get to study God's word together to behold him this morning alive. We're going to be in John chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me there. We've been in Christ is King series and Levi asked me, are we continuing the series this week? And I thought, well, not exactly. We're preaching on uh, Christ's resurrection from the dead. And he says, well, I didn't know if you were going to do a sermon titled Christ is King over death. So that's the title of the sermon. Thanks to Levi this morning. Christ is King over death. Many people all over town, I mean, you reach out to people and they'll say, I'll get back to you after the holiday. Many people celebrate Easter, but increasingly the significance of what this holiday is about is lost on people. It represents spring, we thought. Uh, it represents Easter eggs and family traditions and maybe going to church with your family or you remember days when your grandmother used to take you to church, but before the name Easter was ever applied to this day, it's always been a day where the church that has been bought by the blood of Christ has celebrated the day when he walked out of the grave and death no longer has dominion over him. And we're faced with the question today, why is the resurrection so important? Maybe you're here today and you're asking that question or maybe you already know, but to the world, the cross of Christ is foolishness and the resurrection of Christ is a myth. But for believers, the resurrection means everything. Our faith, our hope, our life all hang on the resurrection of Christ to where Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not raised, then you, friends, are still dead in your sins. And if we in this life only have placed our hope in Christ, then Christians of all people are most to be pitied. If Christ hasn't triumphed over the grave, then he's not God the Son. He's a liar. Then the Father did not accept his payment for sin, and we're still dead in our sins. And there would be no eternal life and only the terrifying expectation of God's judgment that we all deserve and would still deserve and be under if Christ be not raised. Now, we're, we're going to John's account of the resurrection this morning. And this account ends, and he begins to conclude his gospel with these verses. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
He would later say that if all the signs had been written down of what Jesus had done, the world itself could not contain them. So you know in the Gospel of John, you are just getting the absolute bare minimum of what you would need to believe. And that's what he says. These things that I've included, these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's why what we're reading this morning and why we're coming today, whether you've been a believer in Christ for a long time or you're coming just to explore what Easter is all about, the purpose of our text this morning is that by reading, you would believe on Christ and that in believing, you would experience life in his name. We know from Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen, but faith is not mere wishful thinking. Faith rests on facts. It rests on truth, on a person. And so God is calling us to believe on Christ, not merely hoping in what is not true, but here given evidence all throughout that Jesus really is who he said he is, and he's really done what he said that he's done. And this is John's eyewitness account. So before we dive in, I want to pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts and that we would see Jesus this morning. Father, we praise you. Lord, who is a God like you? Pardoning the iniquity of your people. Giving us this grace in which we stand that we do not deserve Lord, our life, our sinfulness, our unbelief, our pride, they all confront us. We are prone to wander away from you. We are prone to doubt your goodness. We're prone to doubt your gospel. And here we come face to face with the living Christ and your living word. We ask that you would stir us up again to a true faith and that we would trust you and love you and worship you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20, we'll begin in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This, then, and stooping in, to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. For if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, who was not with them when Jesus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So it's a lot, a lot of text. And where we're going is we must believe the resurrected son to be forgiven and to have life in his name. Now, the first thing that John records all of this for, and our first point this morning, is that we must believe the signs of the resurrection. So there were lies in that day, just like there are in ours, that Christ did not really rise from the dead. The, in Matthew 28, there's an account of the religious leaders paying the soldiers to lie about the disciples coming and stealing away the body of Jesus. And so that was the great lie. And the story spread, Matthew says, all throughout the Jews, to all the Jews in that day. And it's prevalent today that Christ did not really rise from the dead, that they misplaced his grave or that the disciples came and stole his body away. And John says he writes signs here so that you would believe that Christ really has risen from the grave. And we're going to hit these in quick order so we can get to believing the sayings of Christ. But first, these signs of the resurrection. The first, you see the stone rolled away. And I want you to think about why would the angel roll the stone away? It wasn't so that Jesus could get out. If, if he had the power to overcome something as immovable as death, the most unshakable reality for every human in all of history, and he overcame death, and later his body is passing through walls, the stone did not need to be removed for his sake. 
It was moved for hours so that we could see in. Matthew 27, verse 62 through 66 Matthew writes, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So one, that's, we know that to be laughable, right? But this is, you need to know that when the stone was rolled over the tomb, the ruling empire of the known world sought to make that site and that stone as secure as they could. So this is very secure. It says that they went and set the stone and set the seal. Now, this is the equivalent of the empire roping this off. And it's like the ultimate yellow tape or no trespassing sign. And they would put a wax seal over the rope that was blocking the stone and press it with the insignia of the Roman governor. And the penalty for breaking that seal or even scratching it was death. On top of that, he said, you have a guard of soldiers, go set a guard. So there was anywhere from four to 16 soldiers that were guarding this tomb day and night. It, this is the Roman Empire. Any one of those guards could have guarded the tomb by themselves. And they were very incentivized to do a good job because the penalty for negligence or for falling asleep on the job or allowing somebody to break through their assignment would be death. And there are countless instances throughout the time of like before Christ of Roman soldiers being put to death for even falling asleep on the job. So this was not like a lightweight thing when he says, go set a guard. Every single one of these guys was like Jason Bourne and they were guarding the tomb. And if you broke the seal, then the penalty was death. And we can see that this was a common uh, consequence for failing on the job when Herod put to death all 16 of the guards who were to watch Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12. It says there were 16 guys guarding Peter in prison. Peter is led out by the angel and Herod goes and kills all the guys who were in charge of keeping him there. So you have all these Jason Bourne-like dudes charged with keeping him there. You've got the seal that if anybody breaks, that they'll be put to death. And all of it was a marker for us that mankind made Jesus' grave as secure as they knew how, and heaven opened it. His body was not stolen. Jesus did not sneak away. He walked right through the front door. He had vanquished the grave. And the Father had accepted his payment over sin, and he had destroyed the one who had the power of death. And he walked out the front door, leaving a vacant grave and, and bearing witness. All of us could bear witness looking through the door saying, he's not here. The second sign you see is the grave cloths or the folded face cloth. Now the text in John 20, and this is the only place, it emphasizes these things. It almost seems strange to us that he would keep reiterating the fact that when they got there, then they saw the grave clothes, and then John saw the grave clothes, and then he saw the face cloth rolled up in a place by itself. Now, according to this text says, according to the Jewish custom, they would take these linen cloths and they would have 
these spices. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices. It was this crushed aloe that was like a wooden uh, smelling mixture ground to powder. And the myrrh would be this kind of sticky, gummy substance that would combine with the aloe and they would use it to glue these linen straps, straps over the body and it would cement there and, and harden in place. And it would hide the smell uh, for people that were going to visit the loved one, but it would also serve as a, like a, not mummification, but something similar for a Jewish practice. This is all very expensive material, the cloths, the aloe, the myrrh. And so there are two significant clues from the book of John. You can see why this would be so important to them. When Lazarus is wrapped in similar ways and Jesus raises him from the dead, he's able to stand up, but he has to be unbound by other people. Jesus says, unbind him and set him free. And so what Peter and John find on the scene is these grave cloths lying in place where they had been. This was not somebody standing up and taking them off. They saw the linen cloths and his body had just passed through. Like later, he emphasizes that Jesus passes through locked doors. And he has a, he's been raised imperishable. He has a glorified body. This is not just a normal body anymore. He had risen from the grave. He came out of the grave cloths. They're still lying there where he was, but the face cloth had been rolled up. And you remember the lie of the day was that this had been a ransacked tomb, that they had come and stolen away the body. So Peter and John come there. They see the linen cloths lying where they were. They see the face cloth rolled up, not stolen away, but in perfect control, him folding it up and putting it to the side, saying, I'm leaving here on purpose, in perfect control. I did exactly what I said I would do. And these face cloths and linen, cl linen strips were so significant that when John saw them, he believed the resurrection. This is what it took for John to say. He, as yet, he didn't understand the scriptures. He should have believed because of the scriptures themselves. The scriptures are sufficient for our faith this morning. But this is what John saw. And when John saw this evidence, he said, he rose. Now, the third sign and the last one for us were all the eyewitnesses. And this chapter, you can hear over and over again, there's this emphasis on seeing. And Jesus later praises people who have not seen and yet believe, but we're given the account of all these people who see, they see, they see. So in verse one, Mary sees the stone rolled away. And this was along with other women who were with her, Luke 24 accounts. So you have multiple eyewitnesses that see the stone rolled away. They go and tell the disciples and the disciples don't believe them. They believe that they're saying some kind of idle tale. The eyewitness account of the ladies was not enough. So Peter and John run to the tomb and they Verse five and six, they saw the empty tomb and they saw the grave cloths. The Roman soldiers couldn't explain the empty tomb. They saw the empty tomb. They were afraid for their life. They go to the religious leaders. The religious leaders knew that the tomb was empty. Mary, verse 14, saw the Lord. She sees him face to face and she runs and tells everybody, I've seen the Lord. And they still don't believe her. From Luke 24, two disciples see Christ on the road to Emmaus. And in that moment, Jesus exalts his word. He explains to them before he reveals himself to them, to their face, he exalts his word and explains to them from his word that he is the Christ. 
And then he reveals himself to them and they see him and they believe and they go back and they tell everybody. So now you have multiple eyewitnesses. Now in Matthew 18, Jesus says that, uh, quoting the law, that on account of two witnesses, any charge could be confirmed. So two eyewitnesses was a big deal. This was evidence in court that they could condemn a man to death because of two eyewitnesses. So now you have multiple people that are all seeing Jesus face to face. And then in verse 19 of our chapter, Jesus comes and stands among all his disciples except for Thomas. And they cry out to Thomas, we've all seen the Lord. Every single one of these guys would go on to a martyr's death because of what they saw. Except for John, who was saved from a martyr's death, even though they tried to kill him. Thomas says, unless I see him and put my hands in his wounds, I'll never believe. Thomas wanted evidence. Thomas was a skeptic. Thomas, it wasn't enough that all of Thomas's best friends all said, we've all seen him. He says, I don't believe you guys, and I won't believe you. I need more than seeing. I need to put my hands where the scars were. I will never believe. So there's this emphasis on, I've got to see. I've got to see, see, see. But we're getting the account, all these eyewitnesses who all said, I've seen him. I saw the grave cloths. I saw the empty tomb. I saw the stone. I've seen the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, it says that Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, Paul adds, are still alive. Translation, you can go ask them. These guys actually saw him. You can't show up to 500 people at one time and everybody be hallucinating at the same time. All these people all saw him and they said, we've seen him alive. He rose from the grave. Remember, this is all crucially important because our faith rests on facts. This is not just that we're putting our hope in some wishful thinking or some Greek mythology. This actually truly happened. And we have eyewitnesses to prove it. So believe the signs of the resurrection that John gives to us, but also believe the sayings of the resurrected one. I want to point you to the words of Christ after his resurrection, uh, both for your own devotion and to stir your faith. So the first thing that we see coming out of his mouth, and this is so gracious and merciful. Peter and John run to the tomb. They go back home. It says John believed Peter left wondering, and Mary stuck around. Mary was weeping, and she was distressed. She had gone back and told the disciples this account of, in another gospel, it says that angels had appeared to her and some other ladies, and they said, why do you search for the living one among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. She had gone back to tell the disciples, and guess what? They didn't believe her. She was met with something like, Mary, we know you loved him. We loved him too, and we know you're grieving, but he's gone, Mary. So that's where she is. Now, Peter and John, she ran back with them. They go in, they look. Now they're confused. John's believing. Mary is sitting there in her doubt, in her unbelief. And Jesus appears to her without revealing himself fully to her. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? What, whom are you seeking? Now, we know that when God asks a question, it's not because he's trying to discover something. He's, 
He's helping us to discover something. And this from Jesus is both a gentle rebuke and an invitation. Why are you weeping? She had already heard the angels declare to her that Christ was alive and that he had risen. And so here's this gentle rebuke from the Lord saying, Mary, where's your faith? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And it's the same question that he had asked the disciples at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 1. What do you seek? And when they sought him, he said, come and see. Come follow me. And so here's a full circle moment for a disciple as Jesus emerges from the grave, the head of the new creation, and he's asking her afresh, what do you want? Who are you seeking? And when she presses on, in the midst of her doubts, she's still here. In the midst of her doubts, she's still waiting, searching for him, looking for Jesus. And when she expresses that she is looking for the, her master who somebody has taken, this is his response to her. Mary, second saying out of his mouth. I just want you to think about how precious this is. That into the midst of her doubt, she gets a gentle rebuke, and then he calls her name. And in the saying of her name, he reveals himself to her, and she recognizes him. You think about how personal this is. In the midst of all this last year, in the midst of all of your unbelief, in the midst of your faithlessness, when Christ shows up, and he's not just to everybody in general, but he comes to you, and he knows your name. He's called you by name and you belong to him. This is precious to any of Jesus' people who know his love for them so personal. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20 that we live by faith in the Son of God, listen to his personal language, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He, he's saying it specifically. He could have said who loved us and gave himself up for us, but this love from Christ is personal. He sees you, believer, and he loves you. This is so John's identity that you can see throughout this chapter, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And some have taken that to mean that Jesus loved John more than he loved other disciples or that John was kind of his BFF, but that wasn't it. John just knew himself as what changed in his life and everything about him was that my most fundamental identity of who I am is that I've been loved by Jesus Christ. This is who he is to me. And so when Jesus calls Mary by her name, it's like she's ignoring whoever she thinks is the gardener. She's turned her back to him. She's like, if you know where they've laid him, then tell me, I'll come take him away. And then he says her name, she turns. She says, Rabbi, my teacher. She knows him. In John chapter 10, Jesus said that he calls his own sheep by name and his sheep know his voice. They know him and they follow him because they know his voice. And when she hears his voice, she takes hold of his feet and worships him. And this is what I've been praying for you this week is that you, even if you've been in a far off place or you've been doubting God or you've been in a distant spot, that today you would hear her the voice, the resurrected Savior saying your name. You belong to me. Come back to me. So the question is, do you know his voice? Think about all that time that Mary spent 
at Jesus' feet. She knew his voice. She knew his teaching. And so when he says her name, she says, oh, my Lord, my God, is you. And so the next thing he says to her is, stop clinging to me. <laughs> it's not the thing that you think of next. You know, he's, Mary's, oh, my Lord, my God, my teacher. And she comes and grabs, his, grabs him around his feet. And it says that the next thing Jesus says to her is, stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. Now, this saying is difficult because of the contrast between what Jesus says to Mary and then what he tells to Thomas only eight days later. So he tells Mary, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. And to Thomas, he says, come handle me. Put your fingers into my wounds and come touch me and see that it's me. But there's a difference between these two words for what Mary was doing clinging to him and what Jesus allowed Thomas to do for proof that it was him. It was as if Mary had believed that this saying that Jesus had told his disciples, that I go away for a little while, and in a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while again you will see me again, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come again to receive you to myself. And it was as if she thought that all of that already happened, and she was clinging to him like, he's here, he's back at last to take him to himself. And he's saying, Mary, stop clinging to me. I, the plan is still in motion. I'm still ascending to my Father. And there's a little bit of this, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground, tone to this. As if to tell her, you can't relate to me the same way that you did in the days of my flesh. Like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. That the way that Mary had related to him physically was now giving way to communion through the Spirit by faith. And he's saying, I'm going to the Father. This is, it's not time for you to cling to me to, as if I'm staying here or that I'm just your personal Savior. I've got work to do. And I think the message for us is that in the midst of all of the personal love that we have from Jesus, where we hear our name and we hear his voice and we respond in worship that you know that in the midst of all of your familiarity with Jesus, you don't lose sight of fear and awe. This is not just your personal best friend Jesus. This is the risen Lord of heaven. And he is worthy of our worship. And so I think the other thing that Mary shows us is that has your familiarity with Christ caused you to lose your wonder of Christ? Caused you to lose your place in the mission of God and keeping in view what he is doing, who he lives to be now. So I think this is a, a challenge for believers. A lot of times when we think about Christ, we look back on the historical Jesus and not up to the one who's enthroned on high in heaven as the high priest. So when we follow Christ, we're not just following a, a historical miracle worker who died and rose from the grave, but who's, the fact that he's risen has no bearing in our life today. But he, he is calling us to worship him as the one who has ascended as Lord over all. He is a consuming fire and is worthy of our awe and our worship. But then the next thing that he says to her is go tell my brothers I am ascending 
to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. I want you to hear how rich these words are with forgiveness and hope. The last time he had seen his disciples, it was their backs all running away from him in his greatest hour of need. Now, every single one of these disciples was cowering in fear behind a locked door, overwhelmed by the letdown and the disappointment and the guilt and the fear and the shame of everything that had transpired over the last weekend. What would you expect would be his first words out of his mouth? What do you hear him saying to you in the midst of when you feel like a failure or like a disappointment or when you're cowering in fear? I hear a lot of things and it usually sounds like accusation, like the devil's voice in my head condemning me for all of my failings. But the first word that these disciples hear through Mary out of the Lord Jesus' mouth, the first words of the resurrected Christ were not rebuke, but grace. He said, go tell my brothers. I'll see them in Galilee. Go tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and the plan is still in place. I'm alive. Now, he doesn't say, go tell them that I'm ascending to our father, but my father and your father. So this is both to emphasize this miraculous nature of what Christ has done. He has made his own father your father. His God, your God. He has brought you near by his own blood. And he emphasizes the difference. God is his father by nature. Different in the way that he's your father, but your father all the same. So he's emphasizing the sameness and the difference of his father has actually really and truly become your own father by what he did at the cross and in the resurrection. That is true of you. The father who is Christ's own father by nature has become your father by grace. And so he says, my father is now your father. Go tell him. Though they were guilty and deserving of Christ's judgment, Jesus bore the disciples' curse in his body on the cross. And now he's going to show up to them. And one of the last sayings that we'll look at in this account of the resurrection is that Jesus walks into the room. The disciples, remember, this is not just that they failed him once. They fail again and again and again. I want you to see in them a picture of yourself. They, we think about Judas betraying Christ. Peter denied Christ. That was betrayal. All the disciples ran away. They did not demonstrate great faith. Not, they did not demonstrate great faithfulness. They had been told over and over again exactly what the plan was, that the Son of Man must be crucified. And on the third day, he would rise again. And you can see the gospel accounts emphasizing over and over again, Jesus telling them, and they think he's speaking to them in parables again. Lord, we don't understand what you mean. Because it sounds like you're saying you're going to die, but we know that can't be the case. So then he actually gets crucified on the cross. Like he said, he had told them multiple times he was rising from the dead. They don't believe him. Then somebody comes to him and says, Jesus did what he said he was going to do, and they still don't believe. Does this sound familiar? And so, again, Jesus shows up into the room and the first word out of his mouth is peace. Peace be to you. Hardened of heart. 
slow to believe. All the prophets have spoken, slow to believe all that I've told you, slow to follow me, slow to change, slow to repent, terrible at being consistent. What's the first word out of his mouth? Peace. And then he shows them the reason for it. John 14, 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And so when Jesus is speaking his peace over his disciples, he is speaking directly to their fears. These men hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And he's speaking into their present circumstances. And he says, don't be afraid anymore. I'm here. I'm alive. But more than speaking to their present fears, Jesus is declaring the peace that he has purchased for them and the peace that he's purchased for us by the blood of his cross. And I think oftentimes we don't hear of this peace with the kind of appropriate gratitude, the kind of face down worship that it should produce in us because we don't consider the weight of the lack of peace, of the judgment that belonged to us before we came to Christ. The just penalty for the disciples' sin, for all this betrayal, was the unmitigated wrath of God. Now, we kind of live in no man's land. Maybe you don't believe you deserve an eternity in hell, but we live far off from the presence of God because we believe we're unworthy to actually live there. And so we live in no man's land. But where Christ wants to bring us this morning, what he wants to reveal to us and to show us is that we weren't just bad people. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins and actually deserving of the fury of Almighty God against sin. So when Jesus shows up and says, peace, it's the most revolutionary thing that he could say to you. He's saying you were an enemy of God. You proclaimed to him by your life and by your actions that you hated him and that you were against him and you loved yourself and your own authority. And he knows that exactly about you. There was no washing of yourself before you came to him. You didn't clean yourself up and make yourself a worthy choice. He saw you dead in your sins and deserving of the wrath of God at enmity with God. And into that, he shows up and says, peace. Not because of your worthiness, not because of works that you've done in righteousness, but because of his own righteousness and grace. In Colossians 1, we read it like this. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when we're talking about peace, we're talking about reconciliation. We're talking about you were estranged from God and alienated and far from him and unable to get to him. Him who is the very definition of life itself and heaven itself, where the essence of hell is separation from him. And it says you were lost with no way back. And Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. 
Colossians 1.21 goes on to say, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the gospel, friends, that he saw you with his eyes wide open, as guilty as you were, as dead as you were, as worthy of condemnation and hell as you are. And he sees you with, your eye, with his eyes wide open and he says, I'm giving you my peace so that I can present you before my Father's glory, holy and blameless and without blemish. And his work in that is total. You contribute absolutely nothing. And that is what should produce worship and awe to us this morning. When he shows up to you and his question to you was, what are you seeking? And the answer was everything else besides you. And he called your name. And you saw him and you came to life. And now he gives you his peace and all of it was because of his work on the cross. None of it was because of works that you've done in righteousness. And so Paul says, he did it in order to present you holy and blameless before him and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So that's the key. That's the key from going alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds to holy, above reproach, blameless before the presence of the Father's glory with great joy. And the hinge is faith in the gospel. Faith in the work of Christ who shed his blood so that you could have peace with God, so that you could be reconciled to the Father. And he says, this is how you are going to be presented by Christ as a pure and blameless bride before the Father. How is it going to happen? Believe on him. Believe him. Believe his gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Who believes. And so this last saying of Christ that we look at for believers is him breathing on them with the Holy Spirit. And he says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. That Paul says this gospel has to be proclaimed under all of creation. That we have the best news in all the universe that though this whole town is alienated from God and hostile in their mind and engaged in evil deeds, and you look at it and say, it's too hard for me. It's too hard for the Lord. I can't think of a better description of a people that are anti-God at every turn, hostile in their mind and engaged in evil deeds. And Jesus wants to take people who right now are in that state and present them before his Father's glory with great joy, without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, exactly like Christ. And he can do it by the power of the gospel, by the grace of God, because Christ is alive. And so he says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you on a mission that, that at the very least for believers, the fact that Christ is alive and on his throne and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, the only natural response for the king of glory to be raised to life and seated on his throne is for all of his people bought by his name 
go and declare the lordship of Christ, that Jesus is alive and he is Lord, both of the dead and the living. Jesus sends us to play a vital role in his rescue mission. So it's not an option for us to enjoy the peace of God and the forgiveness of God for ourselves and sit on our hands to focus on our own lives and our own problem and act like Christ is not on his throne and that there's not a mission. The risen one who's alive forevermore has commissioned his redeemed people with the message that is the power of God to take our town and our world that is hostile towards Christ and turn them into sons of the living God. And so he says, go tell everyone and fill the whole earth with the knowledge of Christ. The way that Paul preaches this to a group of non-believing people, he, he walks through the Areopagus in Acts 17 and he sees all the idols and things that they worship. And he says, what you have worshiped in ignorance, I now declare to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, was, is, is not made by human hands. You are a worshiper. This is the reason why our whole town says, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. I'm a worshiper. And so we go to them and say, what you have worshiped in ignorance, we now declare to you. Friends, that is not, well, what I believe is, that is, Christ is king. This is, take a cue from Paul. This is what this looks like. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This is what Paul says to a crowd full of people who do not believe on Christ. And this is what he says. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has, a given, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has a judge of all the earth. And we tried to kill him. And the grave couldn't keep him. And by the power of his indestructible life, Christ, the judge, is alive. And now he is issuing pardon to all who will repent and call upon his name before it's too late. And he has given us the mission, go and declare this message to everyone. Repent while you have time. The judge is alive. He is on his throne. He is returning. And you will stand before him and give an account. He created you for his glory. And even though you right now are hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, by the power of the gospel, he can declare to you his peace and call you a brother. This is resurrection grace. And so the last thing that he says to Thomas, he says to us, do not disbelieve, but believe. He, he looks at Thomas, who's the most skeptic of all the disciples. Thomas, I mean, some of you, you just resonate with Thomas so much, right? That they're going up to Jerusalem, and Thomas's response is, let's all go so we can die with him. Right, this is the skeptical guy. This is the half-glass full guy. And so everybody else sees Jesus and he goes, I don't believe you guys. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here and you've yet to place your trust in Christ. And I'm saying, see Christ in his word. His word is sufficient for you to see him clearly. Peter writes that 
God's word is more sure than an audible voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved son. And we have a word more sure right here. Jesus, when he wanted to show the disciples on the Emmaus Road who he was, instead of revealing himself to him in person first, he goes to the word and he says, see me here. I have been praying for any within the sound of my voice here or online who have yet to place your trust in Christ that today you would hear the voice of the Savior in what he says in the aftermath of his resurrection, where you would hear him asking you, whom are you seeking? Why are you troubled? Hear him calling your name where he says, come to me and find life. I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone comes to me and believes on him, he will live even though he dies. You'll live forever. The way out of a heart that's rightly troubled by sin and guilt and lack of peace with God is to run to Christ, to turn to him, and to no longer disbelieve and to believe on him. And so the question is, will you respond like Mary, who, when she hears the voice of the Savior, falls on her face and worships? Or will you respond like Thomas, who gets a bad rap getting called Doubting Thomas for like the rest of history? How would you like that as your moniker? But after he sees Jesus face to face, he's the only one where it's recorded who calls God, Jesus God to his face. My Lord and my God. I was skeptical, I was unbelieving, but now my eyes have seen the Holy One high and lifted up and I believe on you. God's word is clear that if you turn from your sin and yourself today, he will forgive you of your sin and give you peace with God by the blood of the cross. He'll give you his own spirit to come live inside of you and give you the gift of eternal life. So I urge you, all of this church urges you when we say that we have become ambassadors for Christ and we plead with those who are outside of Christ, be reconciled to God by the work of Christ on the cross. And to believers in the room, I'll remind you that Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of what? What is unseen. And he also says that without Faith, it is impossible for you to be pleasing to God. That whoever, believe, whoever comes to God must believe that he is who he says he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him diligently. And so I have been praying for you, church, that this morning would be a wake-up call. The resurrection has massive implications for your life. You do not belong to yourself anymore. But the biggest implication by this peace that Jesus declares to us is that he has opened access to the Father for you to now come live where a high priest could only once go once a year and that not without blood. And only he could go. And now Christ has opened up a living way through his flesh. He's mediating for us right now by his blood. And he says we can come to him to the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. And you can live there in the presence of God, enjoying his peace, enjoying his joy, actually, presently living in fellowship with Jesus' own father as your father on a daily basis. And so maybe you've been far from that. Maybe you've been doing the equivalent of hiding in a locked room 
or faithless and doubting. Hear the words of the Savior by the blood of his cross. Peace. Come to me. Come live in the presence that he bought for you. And I want to close with this couple of verses from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We see in this chapter the emphasis on seeing him, seeing him, seeing him, and then blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is what Peter writes. Let it remind you, create in you, fan in you a longing for him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Lord, what amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves wretches like us. We once were lost, but now you have found us. You have declared to us your peace and have rescued us. We were once dead in our sin and going along with the course of this world and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved us, you made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would move in our hearts to stir our faith, the kind of faith that falls on our face and worships. Lord, may we shed all kinds of casual familiarity with you that would not hold you in its right awe. Lord, give us grace not to doubt your character, not to live in a far place. Instead of coming to you because of the blood of Christ for mercy and help in time of need. Lord, would you please stir us up for a true worship. Lord Jesus, you are king over death. And you are king in all of life. We bow ourselves to you. Would you help us to be faithful as a commissioned people sent with the gospel to proclaim good news to those bounds so that they could have life in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.